Welcome to the Functional Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Erin Holt. I'm a functional medicine nutritionist with a feisty attitude in over a decade of clinical experience. I work with women all over the world through my online programs, and I'm also the founder of the Functional Nutrition Academy, a 12-month practitioner mentorship where I help other nutrition pros level up with functional medicine methodologies. I've got a bone to pick with diet culture and the conventional healthcare model that are both systematically failing so many of us. Creating a new model is my life's work, and this is what the show's all about. Please keep in mind this podcast is created for educational purposes only and should never be used as a replacement for medical diagnosis or treatment. If you like what you hear today, I'd love for you to subscribe, leave a review in iTunes, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Thanks for joining me. Now let's dive deep. What's up, all you cool cats and kittens? Welcome back to the 12 Days of Funkmas, where I'm re-releasing the fan favorites, the top most downloaded episodes in the past three years, because we just hit 1 million downloads, and that's something to celebrate. And I know that we have a lot of new listenership folks coming to the podcast all the time, so I wanted to give you the best of the best. Here are the most popular episodes, whether you're new to the podcast, welcome, or you're an old season vet and you've been along for the ride all three years. Chances are you haven't listened to every single episode. So these are the good ones. And to celebrate, we're doing some fun giveaways over on Instagram. So make sure you follow me over there, The Functional Nutritionist. Today, we've got Coyote River Hemp Company giving us some CBD. You'll talk, you'll hear all about why I love this in today's episode because I talked it up. Uh, So stay tuned for that. It's the CBD of choice. It's the one I use. It's the one I recommend for my clients. So you can enter to win All we're asking you to do is share this podcast. You want to know why? Because it's a free resource and I spend a lot of time getting you the best of the best of the best information, well-researched, and we just want to spread it around and get it in the hands of more people because lots of people need good, solid nutrition info. So today we're going to talk about protein. We are going back to the basics. Let's dive in. Welcome back to the show. Today we are taking it back to basics. Um, We're talking all about protein today. It's like nutrition 101. Um, But the amount of times that I get asked about protein, I I started to realize, okay, I got to dedicate a whole episode to this one macronutrient. Um, We'll for sure be getting into some of that higher level functional medicine stuff that I um, love so much. But as I always say, we can't do that high level stuff without addressing the foundation and the building blocks first. And today, I mean that quite literally, we'll be talking about amino acids, which are the actual building blocks of protein and of your body. Now, I noticed this past year with some of my clients, I would tell them, to, um, I would talk about protein and tell them how much they should be eating and what they should be focusing on. And some would be like, okay, um, what's a protein? So, so we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Uh, we'll, we'll do the basics. We'll do the higher level stuff. Um, it's going to be a longer episode just because it's such a big, important topic. I want to really do it justice. And then I can live, um, on my podcast as a resource, for us ongoing so I can refer back to. And, you know, if you ever want to refer something to your friends or your um, coworkers or your family about 
protein information. This will live here. If you're a practitioner and want to refer this episode to your clients or your patients about what they should be eating and why, this is a great episode, right? It's going to live as a resource. Let's get into it. We're going to talk all about how much protein do we really need, uh, the benefits of protein, what it does in the body, why we need it. We'll answer the question, is too much protein a thing? Um, certain dietary recommendations for protein, like the, uh, the recommendations that are coming in through the U.S. government, and we'll evaluate, is that is that actually a good thing? Does that make sense? Um I want to cover some specific amino acids and, and why you need to know about amino acids. Glutamine's a big one that we'll talk about. We'll also talk about tryptophan and cysteine. I'm going to tell you why I don't use Tylenol, so stay tuned for that. Symptoms of protein deficiency, how to know if you're not getting enough. We will also talk about protein powders because everybody wants to know about protein powders. So we'll talk about collagen. We'll talk about bone broth. We'll talk about plant-based protein powders, vegan options, uh, as well as the best sources of protein. And I'm going to close it all up by giving you my thoughts on the Impossible Burger because that is gaining in traction like, whoa. So I want you to know what the real deal is. All right, let's get in. Um, For those of you guys that reached out to me on Instagram, so last week I posted a little bit about some anxiety that I had been experiencing. Um, You know, I've mentioned it on the show before. Every time I talk about it, I get so much uh, feedback from people, this whole PTSD associated with chronic conditions and chronic illness and this like health anxiety that's what I call it, hashtag health anxiety um, And I'm for sure going to dive in and dedicate an entire episode to that because it's so gosh darn important and so many of you guys are really feeling it. So that's coming up. Um, anytime I talk about anxiety, I always get flooded with DMs asking about uh, resources for anxiety. Like, what do I do for anxiety? So we got a a good show coming your way. And by we, I guess I mean me. Um, I'm going to interview Kaylee McDevitt. I've had her on the show before. She's an awesome dietitian. She's going to talk to you guys all about anxiety. But two things that I want to point out first. One, watch that blood sugar. I know how much I talk about blood sugar. I do it for a reason. So I we are in week four of the Carb Compatibility Project. Uh, people are cruising. We got over 50 people just like cranking through this program, really regulating their blood sugar and therefore regulating their mood because blood sugar regulation is mood stability. Um, I had a little bit of a funky episode that I shared with the group and I'll share here with you guys. I was, um, I was doing a week four, uh, um, model. So if you've done the CCP, you know what that means. It's a lower carb approach and I was feeling amazing. I was doing it specifically lower carb than I normally go because, um, well, for a number of different personal reasons, neurologically, I wanted to see if, um, it would kind of like alleviate some symptoms and it did for sure. But I was also pairing it with high intensity interval training, which is usually not a, uh, which is usually harder for me. I usually have the more intense I work out, the more carbohydrates that I need. And, um, I was like, wow, I'm able to really sustain some intense workouts doing this low carb approach. I'm feeling awesome. And then one day I really did not, I, I did an IHP class in Inferno Hot Pilates at Blaze Yoga and Pilates in Portsmouth. I came home and I was like, I feel weird. And, um, I also realized that it was a couple of days before my period. So I've noticed for myself that when I 
exercise more with more intensity. Um, I need more carbohydrates and leading up to my period, I need more carbohydrates. So basically it was like a double whammy and man alive that I've experienced so much anxiety. Um, low blood sugar episodes can trigger massive anxiety in me that can last for a few hours up to a few days. So be on the lookout for that. Um, your anxiety might actually be uh, a manifestation of low blood sugar. So something really important to keep in mind that I wanted to, uh, address and it, and it ties into today's topic because protein is one of the macronutrients that helps to regulate blood sugar. We'll talk about that. Um, but the biggest help that I've had for my overall anxiety, because I am no stranger to anxiety. I used to get like raging panic attacks, debilitating panic attacks in my twenties. The biggest help that I I've done it all. I've done the meds, the pharmaceutical meds. I've done the prescriptions. I've done everything. Um, my biggest success has been with Coyote River Hemp Company hemp oil. I've been using it for, I would say a year and a half to two years. Um, I've had such good luck with it that I've uh, recommended it to family who've had really good luck with it, to friends and also to clients. It's the only brand that I use clinically in practice because I know the product, I trust the company itself, and I know that it works. And anytime I post about it, I get a bazillion questions. So here's the thing that you want to keep in mind. The most important thing when it comes to purchasing CBD or hemp oil is that the plant itself was used, uh, the plant itself that's used for the products is certified organic because hemp has the ability, the hemp plant has the ability to pull everything out of the soil. We're actually going to talk about this concept later on today in the show, especially as it relates to protein powders. You have to really have to be hyper-conscious of the health of our soil because anything that grows in that soil, you know, is going to absorb whatever's in the soil. And you really don't want to be ingesting heavy metals, pesticides, insecticides, and any other toxins that might be in the soil. And so a lot of CBD companies, you know, with any, anytime something gets really popular, it can also get really corrupt. So this is why you want to be hyper aware of the sourcing of the CBD and of the, the hemp. A lot of companies will make claims that their hemp and their CBD products are organic, but they actually don't have the crop itself certified. So Coyote Rivers Farms, if you guys are local listening to the show, um, they're right here in Maine and Vermont. And they're certified by Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and by Northeast Farmers Association. Okay, so that's wicked important and something to be aware of when purchasing CBD. Also, Coyote Rivers, all of their uh, carrier oils and all of the flavors added to so the use of mint flavor. Some people don't love the taste of hemp. I personally have no issue with it. I will house it. Um, some people don't love it. So they use a mint flavor that's quite delightful. And, um, even those flavors are certified organic, because again, when you're adding, you know, I've talked about this a bazillion times, any type of natural flavors you want to be highly skeptical about, because where are those natural flavors coming from? It could be anything. So the point is it's a really high quality product. It's extremely effective for anxiety, for mood, for sleep, for chronic pain. Um, I personally cannot recommend it enough. And we're lucky enough to have them as a show sponsor. And they're giving you guys 10% off if you use the code FUNK10, so that's F-U-N-K, the number 10, at goodandcompany.co. That's where you can order up the stuff. Of course, I'll put the link and the discount code in the show notes. 
their prices are pretty darn competitive, um, but now you get an additional 10% off bonus. So head there, check it out. Let me know what you think. It can sometimes take a little while for it to kick in. You kind of got to give yourself it. I would say I noticed a big difference after 30 days. So give yourself a good month. Um, and actually I have to admit this to you. I noticed it was working because when I stopped, I stopped taking it. I was like, this isn't doing anything the first month I stopped taking it. And I was like, oh my God, it really was doing a lot. So keep that in mind. Okay, now let's get into the big protein talk. So what are the benefits of protein? Let's start there. What does it do in the body? Why do you need it? Um, Protein has many different functions in the body. It helps to maintain body composition. It's good for bone health. It's very good for glucose, uh, glucose homeostasis, which is a fancy way of saying blood sugar balance. Protein provides the amino acids that are necessary for cognition, mood, sleep, antioxidant synthesis. Um, A lot of the pathways that run in our body rely on amino acids. So if they're not there, we can kind of have like a systematic breakdown. Uh, Amino acids help us to grow, to repair, to regenerate. Um, You heard me talk about leaky gut in episode 81, why you need to stop self-treating your gut, and also episode 82, where I talked about cortisol, DHEA, and adrenal testing. We are, our gut lining has the ability to regenerate itself every few days, but we need ample amino acids from protein in order to do that regeneration. So to support the gut lining, we know how stinking important that is, we need amino acids coming in from protein. Protein intake can also increase leptin activity. Now, leptin is a hormone that governs the regulation of body weight, of body fat mass, of appetite and food intakes. It's kind of one of our satiety hormones. It tells us whether we should be eating or whether we're full. And many of us in modern day um, have a broken leptin system. There's that, that communication system in our brain is off. So that's one of the reasons why protein is the most satiating macronutrient. It has to do with its effect on leptin. Um, interestingly, the body has a limited ability to store protein, right? We know that we store fat, duh. We store fat in adipose tissue or fat tissue. We can also store sugar. Uh, we store excess sugar can be stored as fat. And then we store glucose as glycogen in both the liver and the muscle tissue. Um, and we can actually take that glycogen and convert it back to glucose via a process called gluconeogenesis that happens in the liver, which, Hey, that's why people can do the keto diet with success. We can actually exist without carbs. Although I always argue, um, we want to be able to thrive and not just exist and thrive. So some people can exist well without carbohydrates. Other people, not so much. Um, and during caloric restriction, during dieting, during underfeeding, whether you're under eating overall calories or you're simply not in eating enough protein, um, you can experience muscle wasting. So your body can actually break down your own muscle in order to free up and access protein because we need protein. So we're going to get it somewhere. Um, I talked a little bit about this 
whole concept in the ep- uh, episode 65, which is everything you ever wanted to know about weight loss. It's one of the reasons why I don't, if somebody is attempting a weight loss diet, I don't like them to lose weight very quickly because you will be losing muscle mass. I had a few people in my CCP being like, hey, I lost five pounds the first week. And I'm like, mm, that's probably not five pounds of fat mass. <laughs> Even though I want my program to be like a super success, I got to be honest with you. Um, probably some of that is just like, you know, you're dropping your carbs, so you're releasing some water. Um, you probably did lose some fat, but uh, if you lost fat at, or excuse me, if you lost weight that quickly, you're also losing some muscle muscle mass, which is a total bummer because the amount of muscle mass you have on you really dramatically affects your BMR, your basal metabolic rate, um, which is basically how many calories you burn at rest because muscle is more metabolically active. It's a, it's a metabolically active tissue. It's energy hungry. It costs your body energy in order to maintain muscle, which is a good thing because you're burning more calories at rest. Your metabolism is increasing, um, which is one of the reasons why resistance training is so awesome. I'm just going to bring this up quickly because I just saw it recently. Dr. Stacy Sims, I'm a big fan of her. Uh, she posted on Instagram, lift heavy weight. Women who don't can expect, expect to lose at least 3% of their muscle mass per decade after 30. So after the age of 30. Uh, so we want to be doing that resistance training to maintain or even grow our muscle mass. Really, really important for health. And then, so we're hearing all this benefits of protein, right? Of course, the question's going to come up, is too much protein bad for you, right? I got that question on Instagram. Um, we've all no doubt, no doubt heard that too much protein isn't good. Um, and I really went to some of the research for this because um, I didn't want to give a an opinion. I really wanted to like get it backed by... Um, more than just what's floating around in my brain, right? And I found a cool article that I'll link to in the show notes, um, and I'll quote from it. The developing controversy about dietary guidelines for protein stems from current perceptions that protein intakes above minimum requirements have no benefit and may pose long-term health risks. These beliefs are largely based on assumptions and extrapolations with little foundation in nutrition science. Diets with increased protein have now been shown to improve adult health with benefits for treatment or prevention of obesity, osteoporosis, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, and sarcopenia. So again, it prevents the muscle wasting. It regulates blood sugar. It's good for your bone health. Um, Dysregulated blood sugar is really at uh, part of the issue with metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes, obviously. Um, It helps with leptin. So we're not putting the brakes on those satiety cues, leading us to eat and eat and eat past our needs. Um, During the past decade, a growing body of research reveals that dietary protein intakes above the RDA are beneficial in maintaining muscle function and mobility, cell signaling via leucine, satiety, again, it's the most satiating macronutrient, it makes you feel full, 
thermogenesis. Um, so protein is considered pro-thermogenic, which means that our body uses energy to break it down. It takes work to break it down. Um, and then finally, glycemic control. Again, that blood sugar balance that is so important for so many things. So how much protein do we really need? Now, obviously, this is going to be different based on the individual. Certain things can increase our protein needs. One such thing is age. Um, increased protein intakes in the elderly tend to be associated with improved health outcomes. So as we age, our protein demands tend to increase. Uh, low protein diets are detrimental in the elderly, right? Um, part of the reason for this is that there's an amino acid that is rate limiting. It's called cysteine. We're going to talk about it a little while later. Cysteine is rate limiting for glutathione synthesis. So which means we need that amino acid cysteine in order to build glutathione. I've talked about glutathione a bazillion times. It's our body's main antioxidant and it decreases with age. Um, antioxidants are basically like uh, anti-aging. They increase our anti-aging capacity. So if we, this antioxidant is decreasing with age and the amino acid that we need to build it is decreasing with the diet, with a low protein diet, it's a double whammy. So that's one of the reasons that the elderly need to increase their, um, increase their protein. We'll get into other reasons in a little bit. Other things that can drive up protein needs, your activity level. So if you're more active, especially if you're doing that resistance training, that weightlifting, um, if you're recovering from anything, illness, injury, surgery, or uh, even just muscle recovery, if you're lifting heavy and hard, uh, pregnancy and postpartum. I just want you to think about it like this. Anytime you're building or repairing, you're going to need more protein. Um, so this is, if you're building muscle, if you're recovering from anything, um, you're going to need more protein. And this part isn't discussed nearly enough in the whole protein conversation, but the reason we need to consume protein is to get those amino acids. Amino acids are what run the show in our body. So we need the ability to break protein down into polypeptides. We don't just absorb protein. We don't eat a steak and then it's just like, whoop, everything goes where it needs to go. We have to break protein down into polypeptides and then eventually into individual amino acids. And if we can't do that well, then it would stand to reason that our protein needs might actually be even higher. Um, and if you're if you're a little bit confused about whether or not you're breaking down your, your protein, one thing to do is to do a micronutrient panel this was really, really eye-opening for me. Um, I have them available on my website, so you can purchase them on my website and then do a consult with me so I can talk you through what everything means um, and what foods you really need to focus on and maybe even potential supplementation, depending on how far gone you are with certain nutrients. It looks at intracellular and extracellular, so basically what's being stored um, what's in your white blood cells or red blood cells, and then what's in the blood, what's in the serum. Um, so it looks at recent status as well as long-term status. And that's really the benefit of doing the micronutrient panels versus just getting like a blood draw at your physician's office that might not give you the full picture. Um, so when I did it, 
I was just like, well, let's just tinker around and see. I'm a nutritionist. I should probably, you know, have some good micronutrient status. And I was very relieved to find out that I was just about perfect. Um, I was like actually really excited (laughs) Um, because my micronutrients were like real good. But I was low. The two things that I was low in were, well, three things. Vitamin C was one. My serum vitamin C was low, which could just mean I was like fighting off a cold or whatever. Who knows? Vitamin C is kind of hard to hold on to. And then glutamine and cysteine. So two amino acids were low, which is very, very interesting. Um, Glutamine we hear a lot about. So I'm going to go into a little bit more detail here. It's a fuel source for our immune cells. It's very, very important for uh, immunity for, and for me having an autoimmune illness. This is, you know, this really made me raise my eyebrows, let's say, pay a little bit extra close attention. Um, so it's a fuel source for immune cells, like I said, including white blood cells. And interestingly, my lymphocyte count was a little low. Uh, that's a type of white blood cells. That's not normally the case for me. So I'm going to start supplementing with glutamine. I'll get another blood draw and see if those lymphocytes came up. That will be sort of an interesting experiment. Um, but it's also a fuel source for intestinal cells. I think this is really where we hear the most about glutamine. It's also called L-glutamine as a supplement. Um, It helps us to maintain the intestinal lining, that barrier system, in order to prevent leaky gut. Um, Now, I joked on uh, a previous episode about why you can't just hammer your gut with L-glutamine and hope to fix leaky gut. You actually have to get to the bottom of, hey, why is the gut leaky and fix that problem? Um, But it is a very, very important amino acid. And if you're deficient in it, you're going to want to supplement with it. Um, If the body's need for glutamine, and this really goes for any and all amino acids, if the body's need is greater than its ability to produce it, or if you're not getting enough from your diet, your body can break down muscle or even the lining of your gut in order to free up those amino acids to be used. I I have talked about this concept before when discussing stress, low blood sugar, cortisol, adrenals. Remember that cortisol is catabolic. So if cortisol is high, it's going to start to free up energy sources for immediate survival. So you'll start to break down your own body tissue, including muscle, including gut lining, in order to free up amino acids during times of stress. This can happen during any stress, psychological stress, dietary stress, fasting, any type of stress, this process can happen. So, um, So it's an important amino acid. Interestingly, I was low. I'm wondering, I did do this test on the heels of a significant period of stress. So that could have been the mechanism for why my amino acid was low. So I'll be supplementing with that one. And then cysteine was also low. Um, And as I mentioned before, glutathione is made from cysteine. You've probably heard me talk about NAC or N-acetylcysteine, which is that precursor to glutathione. And in fact, um, NAC is given in hospitals for acetaminophen medicine, uh, Tylenol overdose. There is a component of Tylenol that is really, really toxic to the liver and it can be detoxified by glutathione. So that's great. But, um, acetaminophen itself can deplete our liver glutathione stores 
And so it becomes a real problem. Um, and this is the reason that we don't use Tylenol in my house. Simply, you just like cruise through your glutathione. And glutathione is so necessary in today's world where we're just being bombarded with toxins in our environment, in our food system, just kind of all over the place. So that's a little interesting fun fact about uh, cysteine. So basically, all of these different amino acids, I just highlighted a couple, but they all have really important roles in the body. So amino acid balance is very important, um, but we have to, like I was saying before, we have to have the ability to break down dietary proteins in order to get those amino acids. Uh, we break it down to polypeptides and then to smaller peptides and then to amino acids, if you remember back to like science class, right? Now, what are some reasons that we wouldn't be breaking down protein adequately? It's almost always digestive issues, um, low stomach acid, inadequate digestive enzyme relief, uh, release. I've talked about this on the show a ton, so I'm not going to get into great detail here, but just understand that we have to break down protein. We have to have the digestive capacity to break down protein in order to access those super duper important amino acids. And there are some red flags that you might not be breaking down protein adequately. Um, one is if you do a micro micronutrient panel and all of your amino acids are low, um, an organic acid test would also indicate this if your um, amino acids are wonky on that. But if you don't have those functional lab tests right in front of you, two other ways, um, if you feel like you're not digesting food. So if food feels like it just sits like a brick in your stomach, food sits really heavy, you're just like, ugh, especially after eating a high protein meal. And then the other one is having an aversion to protein meals. Like I just, you're just turned off by the thought of protein. You don't like it. You don't want it. You don't want it near you. Um, that could be a good indication that your stomach acidity is off. So you're not producing enough hydrochloric acid or stomach acid and, or that you're not producing adequate, adequate proteases. Your pancreas isn't releasing sufficient digestive enzymes. Um, and this is a little tricky in the elderly because hydrochloric acid levels, your stomach acid can decrease with age. So when your stomach acid decreases, you're going to lose some of your appetite for protein and therefore you'll probably eat less protein. Um, you're, you're digesting the protein that you are eating, you're digesting kind of poorly. So we're not getting those really super important, um, necessary amino acids for cognition, for mood, for brain health, for sleep, for glutathione synth synthesis. And this is part of, um, of the picture of as we age. So really important to support digestion, really important to support brain health since it is a digestion is a top-down process and also important to make sure that you're getting adequate protein as you age. Um, when we're not breaking down proteins adequately, this can also lead us to experience more food sensitivities because food proteins get to the gut. We really should just be interacting with amino acids at the level of the gut. But if we're not breaking them down, then these big food chunks are going down to the gut. They're getting sampled by something called dendritic cells. And if those dendritic cells start to act a fool, then we can uh, it can lead us to food sensitivities. And I know this is a really big topic. Um, so I promise that I will be talking about this in, a, in much more detail in an upcoming episode. So stay tuned for that. Um, 
But all of this to say, since we're talking about protein, I really want you guys to understand it's not just about how much protein you're eating, but it's your ability to break it down and utilize it. Okay. So we can't just talk about how much protein do I need without talking about, are you accessing your protein? Are you accessing your amino acids? Those are really important parts of the discussion. So with that said, what are the protein recommendations? Um, the, the RDA, which stands for Recommended Dietary Allowance for Protein, is 0.8 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. So let's put it into to numbers that you might understand. If you weigh 150 pounds, that's about 54 grams of protein per day. Hey, guess what? That's not very much protein. Remember that the RDA is the amount of nutrient you need to meet your basic nutritional requirements. It's basically the minimum amount you need to keep from getting sick and dying. It's basically what you need to survive. Now, I am going to go out on a limb here and say that we're all kind of collectively trying to move out of survival mode. So try to reframe this. It's what do you need to survive versus what do you need to thrive? What do you need to just exist and get by versus what do you need to flourish? What do you need to maintain versus what do you need to repair and regenerate and grow and build, right? We want to be on the other side of that equation. Um, if you listen to last week's episode where I interviewed Meg Dahl, she, Meg Dahl lost her period for 12 years. And in order to get it back, she had to eat 3000 calories a day. She had to eat above her maintenance needs in order to reclaim, rebuild, if you will, her ovulation and her menstrual cycle. So obviously that, that specific example is not um, specific to protein necessarily, but it paints the picture of the point I'm trying to make here is that we need to think about things as what do I just need to get by? Like, what do I need to like really support this body of mine? So I would say you want to consume at least, at least 0.8 up to 1.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. So we're looking at at least 60 to 100 grams per day based on your current body weight, based on your activity levels, based on are you trying to grow, repair, rebuild, regenerate, all that good stuff, right? So those are like, you know, baselines. You didn't think I was just going to give you one number, did you? Come on now. You know me better than that. So what are some symptoms of protein deficiency to look out for? Um, aching muscles and joints, right? We need, we need protein to rebuild and to repair and to like feel good in our bodies. So if you're feeling a little achy, check in. Are you eating enough protein? Hair loss is a big one, massive one. If you're losing your hair, are you eating enough protein? If you're eating enough protein, are you breaking it down appropriately? Um, other symptoms of protein deficiency include brain fog and poor concentration, having low energy fatigue, slow wound healing, immune dysfunction. And for the people who um, tend to be sick often, uh, tend to get catch every ailment that goes around, maybe has some autoimmunity, um, gets injured frequently, your protein needs might actually be increased. So I would tinker around with that a little bit and see if increasing your protein maybe decreases some of those symptoms um, and enhances your immune function. 
Um, and then another one that I'll throw in there is dysregulated blood sugar. If you're having those, those low blood sugar dips, um, whether it be anxiety, like I talked about at the start of the show or otherwise, that can be a sign that you're not eating enough protein consistently throughout the course of the day. And then hunger, that's like the first lever I feel like we need to step on or the first pedal that we need to step on if we're feeling hungry, especially that insatiable hunger. Obviously make sure you're eating adequate calories. I know I sound like a broken record, but yet I still have people coming to me who are not eating sufficient calories. Um, and if you are, if you're like, I'm eating enough food, maybe you need to dial up the protein. Um, all right. So that is the backdrop on why we need protein and how much we might need. Um, now let's talk about the different types of protein. I feel like I'm making really good time. I'm pretty impressed with myself. I'm not making too many pivots or, um, throwing in too much anecdotal material. So strictly business today. Old Air Bear is strictly business. Okay. You may have heard the terms complete versus incomplete proteins. Um, there are 21 different amino acids. Of those 21, nine of them are considered essential. So essential amino acid means that we cannot make them ourselves, so we must get them through food. So nine essential amino acids, we have to get those from, from food because our bodies can't make them ourselves. The rest of them, our bodies can make. Um, how well it makes them is really up to like, you know, what you've got going on, but at least nine of them we have to get through diet. Now, a complete protein um, is one that contains all nine essential amino acids, and an incomplete protein does not. Now, back in the day, this was like even back when I was like first in school for nutrition, so it's not that long ago, but um, we would talk about complementary proteins. So certain certain food proteins have different ratios of amino acids. And so you could take two incomplete proteins and smash them together and make a complete protein. And this was really important for the vegans and the vegetarians. Um, so for example, rice, not a complete protein. Most grains are not a complete protein. And then beans aren't a complete protein either, most legumes. But when you combine them together, you get all nine essential amino acids, right? So um, the, another example that this one will always stick out in my brain, like learning it in school is whole grain. <laughs> I don't know why. It's funny what sticks in your head and what just like slips out. Um, whole grain bread and peanut butter, right? You've got the grain, you've got the legumes, smash them up together. You've got a complete protein. What um, we used to think is that you had to eat them together at every meal. And that is not actually true. As long as you're getting ample variety throughout the course of the day, you're mostly fine in terms of your amino acid ratio. Um, okay, so we're going to get into collagen. Uh, this this is very, very popular. It's increasing in popularity. I mean, I would say, you know, four years ago, which is not that long ago, I'd be talking about collagen and people will be like, what? And now you can go into like Market Basket or CVS and they have collagen on the shelves. So it's really, um, it's really super popular right now. So of course I get lots and lots of questions about it. Um, I personally do really love to use grass fed collagen as a protein source in my smoothies. Um, I will also mix them into, um, like different lattes and stuff. 
Um, but collagen is not considered a complete protein. And so it really shouldn't be used as your sole source of a standalone protein source. Um, collagen contains eight out of the nine essential amino acids. So it's pretty darn close to a complete protein. Um, but the amino acid profile is really skewed in the favor of glycine, proline, and hydroxyproline. So those three amino acids, um, in fact, glycine and pro proline concentration is 10 to 20 times higher than in other proteins. So collagen is a really, really good source of those amino acids. Uh, that's not a bad thing. Um, it's actually a really good addition to many of our diets since we tend to eat mostly muscle meat, right? Like chicken breast, for example. Um, and when we used to, like back in the day, buffet, we used to eat in a much more sustainable, holistic, healthy approach of eating top to tail. So when we consumed an animal, we would pretty much consume the whole darn thing. And when we're eating the connective tissue, we're getting a lot of different amino acids that we're not getting when we're just eating muscle meat, like steaks and chicken breast. So we tend to be lacking in those amino acids that are found in the connective tissue things like skin, cartilage, the joint tissue, organ meats, all that kind of stuff. So for that reason, I don't, I don't think it's a bad idea to supplement with collagen um, because you're probably not getting enough of those amino acids in your day-to-day -day diet. Uh, collagen is the most abundant protein in our body. It helps our hair, skin, nails, bones, ligaments, tendons, and even the lining of our guts. Um, so I, I do think it's, I do, I do think there's a time and a place for it. But again, remember if you're just relying on collagen as your only source of protein in meals, like a daily smoothie, then it could be throwing off the balance of the amino acids in your body. And so for this reason, I really like to throw in other sources of protein when I'm making smoothies. Um, I'll use collagen, but I'll also throw in, you know, nut seeds, hemp seeds, kind of depending on the day. I'll use different protein powders. I'll combine collagen with beef isolate. We'll talk about more of that in a minute. Um, as far as like, if you're going to purchase collagen, what collagen do you buy? Um, you always want to look for grass fed. So collagen is made from the skin of animals, usually cows, it's usually bovine. And so you want to make sure those cows were raised appropriately, were fed appropriately. So pasture raised, grass fed it are the, the, um, terms to look for certain brands that I like are vital proteins, further foods, great lakes, collagen, all of those, um, are sourced. Well, keep in mind that it is, um, it's powdered. Um, so you usually you'll see the, ter the words hydrolyzed or peptides. It just, it's a powdered form of collagen. It's been extracted from the hides of cows, like I said, and because it's hydrolyzed, it's soluble in cold and hot liquids. If you've ever bought in gelatin powder, you know it doesn't really um, blend into stuff very well. Collagen absolutely does. So it's very easy to mix into smoothies, into drinks. Like I said, I'll throw it into, if I'm making a matcha latte at home or turmeric latte, I'll throw it in for some extra protein. Um, it, it's flavorless, so you can add it to just about anything. So it's very, very, very convenient, but keep in mind, it is a processed food. It requires processing to make it. You're not going to walk up to a pasture and find just like collagen peptides sitting out there waiting for you. So, um, 
it isn't, you know, even though it's very popular in the real food movement, it is not a whole food. It, it's not a like soy protein isolate, you know, it's not broken down and processed to that extreme, but it does have some degree of processing. It doesn't make it bad. Just be aware of that. Um, I do often lately anyway, much more lately, I've been asked about vegan collagen sources and there, there is no such thing as vegan collagen just because collagen comes from animals, right? So we, um, it's the protein found in animals. So you can't get vegan, but there is marine peptides available. I know that Vital Proteins makes them, and I'm sure at this point, all companies are making them. Um, so if you don't do cow products and you do seafood, that would be another way to go. Um, another question that I get asked is, is collagen the same thing as bone broth? So like if I'm taking co- collagen, do I have to take bone broth? If I'm drinking bone broth, do I have to to consume collagen? And the answer is that they're similar, but they're different. So they are not the same thing. Uh, bone broth is made from bones. Um, and then, you know, depending on how you make your bone broth there, it's also made with either chicken feet, chicken necks, joint tissue, knuckle bones, cartilage, things like that. The more of that extra stuff, the more of like the cartilage material, um, in the bone broth, the more it's going to gelatinize. Uh, so if you've never noticed you've ever made bone broth and it was just like totally liquid. And then when it got cold, it like firmed up into a jello. That's like the good, good, um, collagen peptides again are made from animal hides. So they're made from different things. So they're going to provide different overall nutrients. They're going to provide different overall protein and amino acids. Um, so they're different that, you know, one's not better than the other. They're just different. Um, uh, bone broth tends to provide chondroitin sulfate. Um, some people take that as a supplement for joint health. Um, that's found in bones and cartilage. It also contains hyaluronic acid. And of course this all depends on how it's made. Um, hyaluronic acid is found in joints. So it's like, if you're using those, um, those knuckle bones, you're going to see more of this. Uh, it contains lots of different types of amino acids. So bone broth is pretty, um, a pretty good source of protein. I, um, I was actually surprised. I bought kettle and fire bone broth. Usually I make it myself or I'll buy it from Vernon family farm, which is a farm store, uh, a chicken farm in Newfields, New Hampshire. They make really good bone broth. Um, but when I looked at the label, I was surprised that I think it was like a cup had seven grams or maybe even more, maybe I'm butchering that anyway, significant amount of protein. If it's made right, you're going to get a lot of protein out of bone broth. And then of course, since it's made with bones, you're going to get those, uh, that nutrition, those, those minerals from the bone, calcium, magnesium, potassium, phosphorus, uh, creating or making bone broth, creating bone broth. It's an interesting way to say it. Making bone broth, uh, and sipping on it is a great way to get in electrolytes, question I get asked a lot about, especially for those of us who like to do hot yoga, uh, hot exercise or saunas, we have to have a way to consistently replace those electrolytes and electrolyte powders are great. And I drink them. I drink them, you know, quite a bit. Uh, trace mineral drops are also great, but if we can get them through a food source, that is even better. Um, one thing that I really, really love to do, um, is, 
take bone broth and then blend, um, excuse me, like steam up some leafy greens and some fresh herbs and then blend it all up together. And it's not like a really thick, dense soup. It's more just like a, like a lovely thing to sip on. Um, I did that quite a bit when I, it's really good if you're sick or if you just, if you're recovering from something or if you need electrolytes for whatever reason, you're, you're packing in a lot of nutrition there. So it's kind of a little bit of a pro tip. Um, so because of this, I wouldn't consider collagen a replacement for bone broth. I think they can both be used interchangeably. Um, if you are looking to stick to the most whole food, sustainable diet possible, bone broth is really the best way to go. You know, you're using, ideally you're using the bones from the animal that you've, that you eat. So you're eating the muscle meat. Um, let's say you roast a chicken, you're eating the, you're eating the muscle meat from the chicken, you're eating the skin from the chicken, and then you're taking the carcass and you're boiling it down. And so you're not really eating the bones, right? But you're getting the nutrient out of the bones. And that is the most sustainable way to, to eat animals. And then same deal like for a cow, you know, you're eating the muscle meat, then you're taking all the rest and you're using the bones and the knuckle bones and anything left over to, um, boil down into a bone broth. This is sort of an interesting thing. Um, so my friends over at Vernon Family Farm, who I just mentioned, um, Nicole started freezing her bone broth in um, little ice cube trays and then popping them into her smoothies. And she's like, I started doing this. You got to try it. Let me know what you think. And I'm like, Nicole, that's disgusting. Um, but you're my friend and I'm going to do it for you. And I did it and it was so weirdly good. So it wasn't flavored. It was just plain chicken broth. And I happen to really love it the most with chocolate smoothies. So like I would put in cocoa powder, you know, whatever else, accoutrements. Um, but I would throw in like four big chunks of frozen bone broth and it was very, very good. It like made it kind of creamy, added a little bit of like complexity to it, a little bit of salt. It, it was very good. So that's something that you could try too. And like I said, bone broth's high in protein. So it's a great way to throw in some minerals, some amino acids and some protein into your a smoothie. Um, what else? I would say that's probably all I have to say about bone broth. Um, oh no, one more thing. Never buy the bone broth powder. When it came on the market, I was like, oh shit, here we go. Everyone's going to be buying this stuff. And I just had this weird gut sense. I'm like, I don't, I just felt fishy about it. I'll try anything, like anything new and jazzy on the market. I'm like, I'll do it. This is the one that I was like, mm, no, this is a hard no for me. And I couldn't explain why. And then about a year later, Consumer Reports came out finding that they had extremely high heavy metals in some of the most popular brands, like the brands that you would walk into the health food store or Whole Foods and see, those were the ones that had like bad, bad stuff. And it makes sense. I just feel like anytime you're drying and heavily processing things or just creating, you know, you're just like packaging this stuff down. Um, you're going to end up with some issues. I don't know. I'm not explaining it very well, but regardless, stay away from that stuff. Just make your own bone broth. Um, okay. So I had mentioned before that collagen is missing one essential amino acid. The essential amino acid that it's missing is a big one. It's tryptophan. 
Um, in humans, tryptophan has a pretty low tissue storage. And so the overall tryptophan concentration in the body is really low. It's lowest amongst all the amino acids, which means we do have to consistently get it in through our food source because here's why it plays a rate limiting role during protein synthesis. So this means if you don't have enough tryptophan, you're not making protein. You're basically SOL. So it Tryptophan is a big one. We don't need a ton, but we do need it. And so this is why consistently consuming collagen as your protein source is going to skew your amino acids and you're not getting that ample tryptophan. Um, Tryptophan also plays a very important role in brain serotonin. So we know serotonin is one of our feel-good neurotransmitters. It's the sole precursor. So without tryptophan, we do not produce serotonin in the brain. We can still produce it in the gut. 95% of our serotonin is actually made. It's found in the gut. So, uh, but even because we have low concentration in the brain in comparison to the rest of our body, it's still wildly important. Um, We need it, again, as a neurotransmitter, as a neuromodulator. Um, It's been implicated in psychiatric conditions, psychological processes. Um, So that tryptophan amino acid is very important for mood, for behavior, for cognition. So for not getting ample tryptophan, big deal. Um, And since we've been talking so much recently about cortisol, this is kind of interesting. Through serotonin synthesis, tryptophan is also involved in the modulation of the endocrine system, our hormone system, and cortisol. So we're, it's all interconnected, right? And so we need the basic building blocks to have the entire body, the, all of our systems function appropriately in harmony with one another. And then um, ser- uh, tryptophan and serotonin, that pathway also produces melatonin. So tryptophan is a precursor to melatonin. We love melatonin because it regulates our diurnal rhythm, right? It's our sleep-wake cycle. It also influences the immune system, our digestion, our motility, which I talked about extensively in episode 76, constipation, gut health, and melatonin. Um, And then finally, tryptophan is important for niacin production, which is B3. So point is, we need tryptophan. So um, eat foods with tryptophan. Um, Everyone's thinking about turkey right now. Sure, turkey has some tryptophan, no doubt. Also, chicken, eggs, cheese, fish, peanuts, pumpkin seeds, sesame seeds, and therefore tahini, um, milk, tofu, and soy, and hemp seeds also have tryptophan. So as long as you're eating a good variety of protein-rich foods, you're probably cool with your amino acid balance. Um, A note on hemp seeds, I love them. They're one of my favorite sources of plant protein, if not my favorite. They contain all nine essential amino acids, so they are considered a complete protein. Um, I do not love hemp powder. So the when you buy like hemp protein powder, I think it's a little gritty. I think it tastes a little bit like dirt. So I always, and it's, if you're putting it into a smoothie, I think it like kind of contaminates the whole smoothie. It makes it taste like a dirt smoothie, which I mean, even in my like raw food hippie, I will eat anything days. I couldn't stomach a smoothie with hemp 
uh, protein powder in it. So for that reason, I always buy the whole seeds. They're also called hemp hearts. And I'll throw those into the, um, into the Vitamix for a smoothie. I also make hemp milk quite regularly. It's very easy to make as a non-dairy milk option uh, because you don't have to soak or sprout the seeds overnight. You just Wazz them up with some water. I usually add some. If I'm if I'm feeling kind of fancy, I will add um, either a date to sweeten it, um, or I will also add vanilla beans or vanilla extract. So like the seeds from the inside of vanilla bean, that's that is so good with like a date. Um, and the ratio is one cup of hemp seeds to four cups of water. So you can make your own milk. It lasts for a few days in the fridge. Um, I probably wouldn't keep it more than five days and I just keep it in a mason jar, but I'm making smoothies just about every day. So it, um, you know, I'm moving through it at a pretty alarming rate, especially because my daughter will drink it too. Uh, the one thing I will say about that is I have found it does not do well when you heat it. So I've tried to make like a turmeric latte and it just got a little clumpy and weird. So I, I just keep it for cold purposes. Yummy over granola. Love it. Um, I also have a recipe on my website, vegan kale Caesar salad, and that uses hemp seeds. But basically, I just throw them on salads all the time. I'll put them in smoothies. Um, great source of protein. So I did get a question on Instagram um, when I posted about all this stuff. And the question is, if you eat meat protein at other meals, it would all balance out, right? I use collagen as the only protein in my smoothie, but I do consume pasture-raised meats at dinner usually. So most likely, yeah. Most likely, you're fine. Um, really, the name of the game is rotation and variety. Try to get lots of variety in your protein sources so you can get lots of different amino acids. Your body can really figure out the rest. Um, I think the biggest issue we run into is leaning too heavily on one or two sources of protein, which is for sure a trap that I've easily fallen into, um, especially with those protein powders. You're just, they're convenient, so we tend to lean on them, and that can be problematic. Um, but for the most part, you're probably fine. One thing I will say though, is that if you're using your smoothie as a post-workout replenishment, collagen isn't going to be the best way to refuel your muscles. Um, we need branch chain amino acids for that. So, um, whey protein powder or beef isolate, they're going to be better, uh, just from this standpoint. And you can mix them, like, let's say you use whey, you can do use whey and collagen together but collagen isn't going to refuel the muscles, um, in a way that we want it to. So just keep that in mind. Um, so let's talk, keep talking. That was a stutter and a half. Uh, let's keep talking about other sources of protein and I'll keep on with the protein powder since we're already on that train. I just mentioned whey, grass fed whey is very bioavailable to the body you want to look for non-denatured low heat. So those are the thing, those are the terms to look for. Non-denatured low heat and grass-fed. Um, when it's non-denatured low heat, it's going to retain immunoglobulins, which is really good for immune health. Um, whey protein uh, is a good source of glutathione. It's also anabolic, so it's muscle supporting. That's why it's a really great protein powder to use post-workout if you're lifting heavy. Um, now it's going to contain, so there's different proteins within dairy. Casein and whey are the two big ones. Many people are sensitive to casein, but some people who are 
are sensitive to casein aren't necessarily sensitive to whey. So you might be able to get away with doing <laughs> get away with doing a whey protein even if you can't have casein. Um, and if you're not sure and you want to be sure, a really good test to do is the Vibrant Wellness Dairy Zoomer. Um, that's available on my website and it shows you the different components of dairy that you may or may not be reacting to. So it'll tell you which, um, like maybe you're sensitive to casein, but whey is totally fine. Now, if you can't do any dairy at all, um, including whey, you could do a beef isolate. That's also quite bioavailable to the body. I'll often use this. Um, one of the brands that I like is called Equip. E-Q-U-I-P. It is very sweet. It's sweetened with stevia. So if you're not into sweet things, it might be a little bit much for you. But when I make my smoothies, I don't usually put a ton of fruit in so or any fruit in. So I'll do, you know, um, cauliflower rice, frozen cauliflower rice, uh, spinach, avocados, um, you know, a lot of non-sweet things. And so I don't mind having a sweetened uh, protein powder. I'm taking a break from it because it started to get like, you know, when you just eat too much of one thing, I was like, this is just, uh, like wearing on me. I didn't, I stopped enjoying it, but I'll probably circle back around, but it's good to take breaks and, and try different things out anyway. Now, plant-based protein powders, what is what everybody wants to know about. And unfortunately it's tricky because they can be very high in heavy metals and pollutants. So the same thing I was talking about at the start of the show about hemp oil applies. What is what are the soils? You know, the, the stuff that is growing in the ground or is going to pick up whatever's in the soil. And consumer reports found that some top selling powders contain concerning levels of heavy metals like arsenic, cadmium, mercury, lead, and also toxins like BPA. Um, overall, the products that were made from plant protein like soy or hemp actually fared worse than those made from animal sources like whey or egg containing as much as, um, on average, twice as much of lead. So, um, it's, again, it's, you have to consider where is it being grown and those plants are more prone to absorbing heavy metals from the soil. And unfortunately, cause a lot of people are like, well, it's organic, so it's fine, but that's actually not true. Um, organic does not mean they have tested for the soil for heavy metals. Um, and in fact, even consumer reports founded that are found that the organic label didn't reduce the chances of getting a contaminated product. So, um, I have a hard time recommending plant protein powders for this exact reason. I'm not trying to be, you know, um, elusive. I just, I, I don't know a ton of good ones. Um, here are the five products that received the poorest overall scores from consumer reports, garden of life, nature's best quest, 360 cut in Vega. Uh, the reason that I read those is because I know a lot of people consume Vega and a lot of people consume Garden of Life. So those might not be your best options in terms of plant protein. Um, one company that's doing a very good job is Truvani. Um, I do believe you have to order directly through the website. They have a mix of pea, pumpkin, and chia. Um, I've, I haven't tried it before. I've heard it's very sweet. So keep that in mind, but they do test for contaminants. Um, so, which is an important thing. Now, if you're eating a protein powder and you want to know what's up with it, you can call, call the, please don't, 
call me. <laughs> Please don't email me. I'm not like a watchdog for every product in the market, but you can call the actual company themselves. Um, a lot of companies will decline to answer when they're being reached out. So consumer reports obviously contact a lot of companies. Some decline to answer. That's sketchy. They should be able, they should be upfront and willing to communicate with their consumers whether or not they test. And if they do test, what the results of that testing, those testing, uh, that test is. So that's something that you could do to investigate it a little bit further. Um, but I guess it sort of begs the question, do we even need protein powders? Uh, because ideally you're getting your protein from whole food sources. I do understand that protein powders are very convenient. I use them myself, but they are isolated. They are processed. They are refined. Um, and they're always going to be subpar when we're comparing them to actual whole food sources of protein, right? Those are going to tend to be your best bet for balance, just like real protein sources. Um, so that's kind of my, um, that's kind of my breakdown on protein powders. They're convenient, but they're not the best. Now, primary sources of protein are going to be going to come from animal sources. Yo, if you're a vegan or a vegetarian and you're listening to this, like cool out for a minute. I'm going to circle back around to you in a second. I was a vegetarian for 20 years. I get it. I'm also reporting the information. Okay. So that's my job. Um, your job is to listen to the information and then decide what to do with it. So, um, when we're talking about animal sources, we're always, always, always talking about grass fed and pasture raised in the case of seafood, it's going to be wild caught. Um, so we're looking at ruminants like beef, bison, venison, goat, lamb, poultry, like chicken, um, eggs. Oh, that was something that showed up on my micronutrient panel. My choline was like super robust. I eat a lot of eggs. I love eggs. And I was like, all right, choline. Um, choline is one of those nutrients that people tend to be deficient in, but eat your eggs and eat your yolks because that's where all the choline and goodness are. Um, and also don't just eat one egg. Like you need, like you're an adult. Chances are, if you're listening to the show, one egg has like six grams of protein. That's not going to cut it. You need like three eggs minimum per meal. Um, and if you're worried about cholesterol, go listen to my cholesterol episode. There's like an over an hour of information all about cholesterol. Okay. Fish and seafood, organ meats like heart and liver. If you're a brave, brave soul, um, keep in mind that lean meats can actually throw off your amino, amino acid balance. So if you're just eating the chicken breast, right? If you're just eating the lean cuts of, of meat because you want to be quote unquote healthy, that's going to throw off your amino acids. Um, if you're just eating a ton of muscle meat, that can be a little bit harsh on the kidneys because it's higher in methionine. Um, and so just keep that in mind. The, the more you can eat top to tail, right? Think like bone in, skin on, chicken thighs versus just ch chicken breast, right? Think about it like that. Um, generally, the healthier it is because you can get more of a spectrum of amino acids and nutrients. That those gl that glycine, the proline, oh, that's super helpful and important for connective tissue. Um, if you're eating fish, don't be afraid of the skin and the bones. So sardines are amazing for nutrition. Um, with the bones in and the skin on. I know I've talked about this before, but I buy canned salmon always with the bone in and the skin on when it's available. The skin's going to contain lots of essential fatty acids, all those omega-3s, right? 
And then the bones are going to contain all the nutrients that bones contain, vitamin D, calcium, magnesium, all that good stuff. And then, like I said earlier, it's important to rotate your sources. So just make sure you're getting a good variety of the different proteins. Now, secondary to that, um, we have some other options for protein. So grass-fed, full-fat Greek yogurt. If you're saying, why grass-fed and why full-fat, go back and listen to my dairy episode. I think it was number two. It was one of the first ones um, because we simply do not have time to unpack that question on today's show because we're already over an hour, which I knew was going to happen. Um, cheese, naturally processed meats. Um, you really don't want the bacons and the prosciuttos and the cheeses to be your primary source of protein. Think about them more as condiments. A little bit here and there is fine, but you're not, you know, you're not like filling a quarter of your plate with this day in and day out. Um, other plant-based sources of protein, legumes. So your beans, right? Um, these also come packaged up with carbohydrates and starch. So that's really important to note. They're, it's not just straight protein. Um, I really love the different types of bean pasta. Um, organic soy is great. Any type of soy you eat ever should always be organic and you always want the whole food soy. So never the soy isolates um, anything like that. You want whole soy. Tempeh is great. It is, um, fermented soy. Be sure if you're gluten-free, um, or gluten sensitive, be sure that you make that you're getting, um, tempeh that is not made with barley or other type of wheat containing grain, because sometimes they are. So just be mindful of that. Tofu, a little bit more process on the process end of the spectrum, but if you can find organic sprouted tofu, that's a good way to go. Um, I happen to love edamame pasta. So if you can find that, the only ingredient is organic soybeans. It's black pasta, very tasty. Um, and then of course we have the nuts and the seeds that are also provide protein, but they also provide significant fat. So not just a straightforward form of protein. And this is really why plant protein is is different um, and considered less bioavailable to the body than animal protein. It's because it's processed differently. Um, there's a lot of fibers that's wrapped up with other stuff. Um, a plant protein also contain anti-nutrients. Um, plants have defense mechanisms um, just built into them. And so when we consume them, we also eat the defense mechanisms. And it's usually not a big deal. It's a bigger deal for some of us than for others. Um, but the anti-nutrients can uh, reduce the protein hydrolysis. It can reduce amino acid absorption. So we're just not accessing the amino acids and the protein in the exact same way that we do from animals. Um, there is something called the protein digestibility corrected amino acid score, and it's been adopted as the preferred method for measuring how proteins best meet human nutrition needs. And at the top of the heap are beef, eggs, milk, and soy proteins. Now, again, it doesn't account for those anti-nutrients. So soy does have significant anti-nutrients, lectin being one of them. Um, some people are very sensitive to lectins. I actually just did a lectin zoomer. And so it's similar to the dairy zoomer. It's looking at different ways that your body can be, um, be sensitive to lectins. Lectins are sticky protein in certain plants. I, since I have scleroderma, which is technically a rheumatic disease, um, 
those of us with rheumatic diseases like rheumatoid arthritis, for example, lupus, um, mixed connective tissue disease would fall into this category. Uh, our, um, we tend to be more sensitive to lectin. So I wanted to make sure that I wasn't eating any foods that were contributing to the autoimmune picture and contributing to symptoms. And I was pretty much in the clear with the exception, this is so sad, of um, chickpeas, chickpea lectins I react to, also corn lectins. So no more chickpeas and no more corn for me, which only sucks because I'm obsessed with Banza pasta and I was eating uh, a lot of it, a lot of it. So I'm like, all right, got to find some other bean pasta. Um, okay. Let's stop here for a second and we'll pick right back up because I want to answer one of the top questions I get in my business, which is what probiotic do I recommend? Now, obviously this is going to depend on the individual and what you got going on in your gut, but for a daily staple probiotic, I'm a big fan of BioCult. I've actually been using them for, uh, since Hattie was a baby. So over six years ago, um, I first learned about this company. Their favorite product of mine is their Boosted Probiotic because it's four times the potency of their original formula. Boosted is cost-effective, it's shelf-stable, and it contains strains of lactobacilli and bifidobacteria, which are the friendly bacteria in our guts that are often really low in the people that I'm doing functional GI testing on and stool testing on. Those bifidobacteria especially, they make up 90% of the beneficial flora in our colon. So when we hear all about the microbiome and the benefits of the microbiome, a lot of what we're hearing about are those bifidobacteria. So whenever I'm looking for a probiotic or recommending a probiotic, I'm always looking to make sure that they do have different strains of bifido and BioCults Boosted absolutely does. They're non-GMO, they're gluten-free, and their stability and potency are guaranteed through external lab testing. So somebody else came in and they said, yup, what they're saying is in this is actually in this. Um, and if, if you can't swallow pills or you've got kiddo who can't swallow pills, you can break the capsules apart and sprinkle the contents into food or drink like oatmeal, yogurt, or smoothie or something like that. And of course you can just swallow them whole. So head over to biocult.com, use code FUNK 20 so you can save 20% and get your gut feeling good. All right. Now we're back. Uh, I have one more question and it is, can you talk about the difference between grass fed and just organic when it comes to meat? Um, yes. Great question. So organic, when you're buying meat, so let's say you're buying beef. You're, when you buy organic beef, it's really looking at what the animal was fed. Um, so organic means that the animal wasn't given hormones. It wasn't given antibiotics. Um, and there was no pesticides in its feed, but the feed is not necessarily grass. It's most likely corn, soy, or, um, other types of grain. Whereas grass fed meat really means that it was only fed grass. Um, it was pasture raised. That's another good key phrase to look for. And also grass finished um, because a lot of cows, I think all cows get started off on grass and then they get transitioned over to, um, to grain 
corn, soy. Um, so grass-fed, grass-finished, or 100% grass-fed are some of the terminology to look for. Now, from an environmental perspective, grass-fed beef is far superior because it's regenerative. Um, in a grass-fed, grass-finished situation, cattle spend their entire lives on grass, and they are sent to slaughter much later than feedlot cows. And the longer, like the more that they are pasture, they're able to, um, to graze the grass. Right. And when they poop, their manure returns nutrients to the soil. So it's like really like this closed system and they're walking around and they're spreading the manure into the soil, into the grass, which is feeding the grass. Um, and because the animals are grazing the land itself, the land doesn't have to be plowed. And we, the grass has become more deep rooted, um, prevents erosion. It's just this really beautiful system. So when we have grazing ruminants, they're really the key to a healthy ecosystem. Um, so buying and supporting grass-fed beef is, is a way to um, vote with your dollar and support the environment, um, much to much, um, um, in fact, killing off all the bison was, is one of the things that we blame for the dust bowl in the 1930s. Um, no bison, no poop, no nutrients in the soil. If you don't have nutrients in the soil, you can't grow anything. Now I'm not a farmer and I'm not an agriculturist. So I'm just doing my best to explain it as I understand it and see it. Somebody else could probably do a way better job. Um, actually, I will refer you to Diana Rogers. She's an amazing dietitian based out of Massachusetts, and she's doing so much research and so much work, and she's trying to create a documentary um, in order to help people better understand why meat is really nutritious and really sustainable for the planet, appropriately raised meat. Um and the longer that cattle can stay on pasture, the more they can tr contribute to that ecosystem regeneration. Uh, Diana Rogers says, without animals, our entire ecosystem and our health will fall apart. And now I know that the, the question actually was more geared toward nutrition, but I had to do a little bit of a um, sidestep there because... Um, we cannot separate ourselves from our environment. So what is good for the planet is good for us. And we do not act or live in accordance with that truth. And it's beginning to show. So as humans, we are the stewards of the earth. And it's really our responsibility to take care of the earth. And one way to do that is through the food that we eat. And I hate to break it to you. And I'm going to probably get some flack for this, but going vegan isn't necessarily the answer. Um, supporting a sustainable food system is much more of the answer, which I'm going to talk about in a second because eating impossible burgers is not going to save the planet. Sorry. Um, but in terms of, of, of deep nutrition, grass-fed, since you know, cows were designed to eat grass. So feeding them their appropriate diet, they're just going to be healthier cows in general. Um, and when they're fed their appropriate diet, they're going to produce healthier milk and they're going to produce healthier tissue. So when you consume the grass-fed dairy or you consume grass-fed beef, you're just going to get more uh, nutrients, specifically CLA. That's a big one, conjugated, conjugated linoleic acid. And then... Um, 
grass-fed beef tends to have more omega-3 fatty acids, whereas grain-fed beef is going to be higher in omega-6 fatty acids, which is just throws off the ratio in an unfavorable pro-inflammatory fashion. Um, Okay. And then I do want to talk about the Impossible Burger just because it's so freaking popular right now. The Impossible Burger is a great example of greenwashing. If you ever, if you read my blog post on why I will never feed my kid isogenics, I talk a lot about greenwashing, which is just saying a product is healthy, even though it's really not. Um, So Impossible Burger is telling you, hey, it's really good for the planet, when in fact that is not true. It is not an environmentally friendly product. Um, and it, it doesn't move us away from a toxic, burdensome, industrialized food system. It's a very, very heavily processed product. It is not good, does not support regenerative agriculture. It's made with genetically modified soybeans. And understand that GMO monocrops like corn, like soy, like all of the products that the like meat replacement products are made with, um, these monocrops are very, very reliant on pesticides. They're very reliant on pet- petroleum-based fertilizers. Um, they absolutely, without question, contribute to the collapse of bee colonies, of butterflies, of birds, of fisheries. When we um, just basically bulldoze land to create one big crop of corn, that's not regenerative agriculture. It doesn't support um, a sustainable ecosystem. It's killing off animals' ecosystems, in fact, so they have no place to go. And then the poison, the pesticides that we use to grow these crops um, poison our water, not only the animals, but our water, our soil, um, our air. So it's a pretty big thing. Um, so just don't buy into the hype. Don't be fooled by its marketing. From a nutrition perspective, I will read you the ingredients and I'll just let you like suss that out for yourself. Um, soy protein concentrate. So again, we don't really want to ever consume soy protein concentrate or isolate. We only ever want to consume soy in its original form and always organic. This is not organic. Coconut oil, sunflower oil is the third ingredient. We know how uh, pro-inflammatory sunflower oil is. It's not one of the oils that we should ever be consuming. And you can go back to episode three to learn more about why. Uh, Natural flavors is the next ingredient no idea where those come from. Uh, Potato protein, methyl cellulose, yeast extract, cultured dextrose, food starch modified, soy, I don't even know how to say that word, Uh, soy protein isolate mixed to cofferols. And then it's just a bunch of synthetic nutrients added into it because it doesn't actually have any nutrients on its own. So not a great product. Um, If you are eating plant-based uh, for animal welfare. If you know, if you're a vegan or you're eating plant-based because you want to, that's just your jam. Again, I did it for 20 years. I completely understand. Um, two veggie burgers that I think are better. They're not super high in protein necessarily, but they're very good from a um, ingredient standpoint. One is sunshine burgers. So they're made with brown rice, um, sunflower seeds, and organic veggies. They're so good. And then Hillary's veggie burgers, I think, are also great. They're uh, gluten-free, corn-free, soy-free, nut-free. So they're very allergen-friendly. They're made with um, millet and then some veggies. They do have, um, they are made with canola 
um, or sunflower or safflower oil. So that's like the only thing that I don't love about it, but it's in a smaller amount. And I just feel like it's not that big of a deal. If you're looking for a good veggie burger, that's a good one. Um, and that's about that. It, just to summarize, um, with that whole discussion, if you're eating a whole food diet, your plants should look like plants and your animals should look like animals. So if your plants look like animals, chancing, chances are you're not actually eating whole foods, right? And that's the case with the impossible burger. So if your plants are trying to look like a burger, it is probably not whole foods. Anyway, that is the conversation around protein. So I hope you walk away from today's show with a little bit more understanding of why we need protein, where we should get it, how much you might need, depending on some different factors. And I will catch you. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Functional Nutrition Podcast. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, fill out the contact form at erinholthealth.com. If you got something from today's show, don't forget, subscribe, leave a review, share with a friend, and keep coming back for more. Take care of you.